Hopefully everyone's gotten a, uh, an outline of tonight's study on chapter 5 of the Second London Baptist Confession. We have made it so far to the fifth chapter on God's providence. And I hope we'll see as we work our way through this chapter on God's providence that this is a very practical and immediately relevant doctrine for all of us. All doctrine is immediately relevant. Sometimes we have to work a little bit harder to see the immediate uh, application of certain doctrines in God's word. But God's providence is one that is very easy to see with regard to its implications for your life. Uh, Everything that happens to you, everything that happens in the world, finds its meaning in our understanding of God's providence. So, so far through the confession, we've seen the scriptures, and then we've seen the being and the character of God, his attributes in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, we saw God's eternal decree. Chapter 4, we saw God's creation. God is the creator of all things. Tonight, we're getting to, the, to God's providence. In every chapter that we've studied so far, the, the confession has been taking the Bible's teaching with regard to the greatness of God, and, has present, and, and it's basically presented to us Uh, the the Bible's doctrine on the teaching of God in such a way that we walk away with a very, very high view of God. He is worthy of all things because all things center on him. Everything in your life finds its meaning in the context of its connection to God, the creator and sustainer of all things. It's when we try to take life and find meaning in it apart from God that we fall into the deepest realms of despair and idolatry and meaninglessness. It's when we see all of life in the context of who God is and and its interconnectedness with God's working in creation that we walk away with a sense of peace, of rest. My life has meaning because it finds its meaning in my creator. And so I think the doctrine of God's providence, it reminds us your life is meaningful. Every detail of your life is meaningful, not because of the dreams and plans you have for yourself, but because every detail of your your life falls under the umbrella of God's loving and gracious providence. And so it's a very practical, very relevant doctrine with regard to our daily lives. So we're dealing with the doctrine of God's providence. If you look at the outline, you'll notice uh, it's broken down here into four different sections First is the first paragraph of chapter 5 on God's providence defined. So basically, a statement with regard to what God's providence is. So if you look there with me, the first paragraph of this chapter of the confession says, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the very least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created. He does this in accordance with his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. So like all the other paragraphs we've or all the other chapters that we've studied so far, once again, this chapter emphasizes the fact that all of God's workings ultimately serve to the display of his glory. Once again, the theme multiple weeks has been good theology always leads to doxology. 
a good understanding of God's providence, a right biblical understanding of God's providence, should lead us to the last line of this first paragraph, to praise the glory of God's wisdom, his power, his justice, his infinite goodness, and his mercy. Good theology, a good understanding of God's providence, should lead us to worship. Providence simply means this. It means God and God alone, incessantly, moment by moment, directs all things, every detail, toward the end which he has determined and purpose. God directs everything toward the end for which he has purposed it. So there's no situation or event in all of creation over which God is not presently, right now in this moment, actively governing and ruling. And we see that all throughout the pages of the scriptures. It's impossible to open up your Bible to any page and not see God's providence. God ruling, God governing, God directing every detail of every event toward the end which he has purposed for it. Some examples, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, speaking specifically of the Son, it says, And he is the radiance of his glory, the, the exact representation of his nature. And then it says, And he upholds all things by the word of his power. So the Son of God, moment by moment, is upholding, he is sustaining everything that exists by the word of his own power. In other words, should the word of his own power for any reason let go of its sustaining grip on you or on anything else in creation, it would disintegrate into nothingness. The Son of God is upholding all things by the word of his power. We could look at Colossians chapter 1. In him all things hold together. There is not a detail in creation that is not constantly held together by the Son and his power. Isaiah 46 verse 10 says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, God says, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God will accomplish all his good pleasure. That's all encompassing of everything that transpires in the realm of creation. He accomplishes everything that he desires. So the doctrine of God's providence then is directly related to the doctrine of God's decree. So if you remember a couple, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the doctrine of God's decree, and we saw, I at least uh, made one reference to the fact that God's decree can be uh, compared to a blueprint. So if you imagine a big building that needs to be constructed, the very first step in building that building is to write up the blueprints for it. The blueprints basically tell us what that building is going to be like, and it, and it includes every detail of what's required in order to get that building from start to finish so that it ends up being what it was designed to be. God's decree is like a blueprint. From eternity, before there was creation, God laid down a plan for creation. He determined what he wanted to do with his creation. He determined every detail of what would need to happen in his creation in order for it to consummate in the end for which he made it. God's decree is him saying, this is what will happen in my world. This is what will happen with my creatures. This is the end for which I am making everything, and it will all happen this way. That's God's decree. 
So then what's God's providence in connection to God's decree? How does God's providence relate to the eternal decree of God? If God's decree is the blueprint, then we could compare God's providence to the actual construction process. The blueprint says what creation will do. Providence actually brings it about in time and in space. It is God actively governing and directing everything toward the completion of his decree. So his providence is the outworking of his decree. The Bible's teaching on God's decree and on God's providence is in direct contradiction or contrast with deism. So I'm sure most of us are familiar with the idea of deism. Deism basically says that God is like a divine clockmaker. Has anyone heard that illustration? God is like a divine clockmaker? So a clockmaker, you know, he builds a clock. And once the clock is completed, he winds it up, and then he puts it aside, and the clock functions on its own. There's nothing more that he needs to do to the clock. It ticks on its own. He's wound it up, he's put it in motion, and he lets it go, and he lets it be, and the clock functions on its own. Deism basically views God that way. It says God created the world. He, he established certain patterns and, and laws and principles by which nature would be governed, the, the rules of cause and effect and everything else. He set it all in motion. He wound it up, and then he kind of left the earth to itself, and he left his creatures to themselves, and he now stands back at a distance, and he watches, and he observes creation. He's a divine clockmaker, in a sense. But the doctrine of God's providence tells us the very opposite. It would be more accurate to say that God is, is not winding the clock up and leaving it, but God is building the clock, and then moment by moment, he is turning the hands, little by little, by his own doing, by his own working. He is intimately involved with every single detail of his creation. That's God's providence. And what that means for you, and what that means for me, is that there is not anything that happens in your life that is random. And there's not anything that happens in your life that is merely chance. So whether you get in a car accident, or whether you get a promotion at your job, or whether you fall ill and begin to suffer from some form of disease or sickness, or whether you get a stain on your t-shirt this evening, whatever it is that happens to you, the great things, the small things, the significant things, the seemingly insignificant things, everything that happens to you is a result of God's, of God's providence over your life. There's nothing so great or so small that it is without or outside the scope of God's superintending wisdom and power over your life. So that's what God's providence is then. God's providence is his constant governing, upholding, directing all things towards the end for which he created them. Now if you look on the outline, number two, the next point that the confession makes is with regard to God's providence in relation to second causes. God's providence in relation to second causes. And there are two points under that, A and B. A has to do with God's providence and how it generally works through second causes. So we can read that paragraph and then I'll explain something of what that's saying. So letter A, right under that, the second paragraph of the confession says, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, who is the first cause, all things come to pass immutably or, ch- or unchangeably, 
and infallibly, so that there is nothing that happens to anyone by chance or without his providence. Nevertheless, by that same providence, God orders all things to come to pass according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently, that is, conditionally or non-necessarily. So what is the confession saying there? That's a hefty paragraph. Basically what it's saying is, yes, God has complete control over every detail within his creation. He is providentially upholding and governing every last detail. And yet, he does so through means. He does so through people. He does so through the choices that you and I make. So if the first paragraph is dealing with, is is addressing the issue of deism. So you remember deism says God wound the clock up, stepped back, and left it to function on its own. The first paragraph is saying, no, actually God is intimately involved in every detail of his creation. The first paragraph is dealing with the issue of deism. The second paragraph that we've just read is dealing with the issue of fatalism. Fatalism says, well, God already knows. God is is sovereign in his providence over everything. He, He already directs and governs all things towards the end that he wants them to reach. And so it really doesn't matter what happens in life. My choices don't matter. My circumstances don't matter. My actions don't matter. My words don't matter. My body doesn't matter. Nothing matters because God ultimately is the one who determines it all. That's fatalism. The Bible never teaches anything like fatalism. It always reminds us again and again that your choices really matter. What you do with your life matters. And the reason it matters is because God has chosen not to work apart from your choices but through your choices. The way that he brings about his purposes is through your will, through your choosing, through your decisions in life. God does have a predetermined plan in mind, and and he is sovereign over everything that happens in your life and the decisions that you make. But he's also determined that he will bring about every purpose through second causes, through real choices, real responsible human beings like us. So that's what's meant by second causes. God is the first cause. God determines everything, ultimately. And yet he works through second causes, people and circumstances, people who make real decisions, circumstances that really are cause and effect. If you jump off a building, you will get hurt. If you have a car accident, you are in danger. If you don't eat, you will be malnourished. Those are basic principles that God has put into his creation so that his purposes do come to pass. For example, consider prayer. God has determined what you will or will not receive from him. Is that not right? God has determined it, and he is providentially bringing it about in your life. And yet we read in James chapter 4, you do not have because you do not ask. Why do you not have what you're wanting, what you need, or at least what you think you need? Well, yes, because God in his providence has not given it to you. But also, according to James, because you have not asked. You have the responsibility as a free uh, agent to determine what you will ask for. And so God brings about his purposes in prayer by us asking for those things. Another example, Philippians 2, verse 19. Paul, when he's in prison, he says, this is Philippians 1, verse 19. He says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance 
through your prayers and the provision of the Holy Spirit. Paul's in prison. He knows that his circumstances rest in the sovereign hand of God, and yet he says, I would not be delivered if it were not for your prayers. God is working through your prayers to bring about his purpose to deliver me. And so, again, the issue at stake is fatalism. The Bible is is teaching us your choices matter. Your prayers matter because it is through your choices and through your prayers that God is bringing about his sovereign decrees through his providence. And then the next little paragraph there, uh, the third paragraph under letter B, it's basically making the opposite point. A is saying God works through means. B is saying God doesn't always work through means. Sometimes he bypasses those means. And basically what it's saying is God is not to be uh, limited to the box that we make for him. So yes, there are certain laws in nature by which God generally governs the earth, but sometimes he bypasses those laws, like all of the miraculous accounts in the Gospels would be examples of that. So basically it's just saying God can and God does do miraculous things. He bypasses the normal means, the ordinary means, and to accomplish his in order to accomplish his purpose through other ways, miraculously. So then, those two paragraphs together, dealing with God's providence in relation to second causes, basically it's encouraging us on the one hand, don't give in to fatalism. Everything does matter in life, and it matters because God works through second causes. And then on the other hand, don't limit God. God works through means, he works through second causes, and yet God is free to accomplish things by bypassing means by doing things above and beyond or even against the natural laws of nature that he's put into place. Then the third section here, God's providence in relation to sin. So we're dealing with God's providence, his personal, active directing of all things in creation. And naturally that raises the question, if God's providence extends to everything, if he is if, if he is ultimately the one directing and governing everything that comes to pass, then what about sin? And so the confession is addressing three ways that God's providence relates to sin. First, sin in general, and then sin in the believer, and then sin in the unbeliever. So God's providence in relation to sin in general. If God is sovereign in his providence, then what is his relationship to sin? Is he sovereign even over that? And if he is, is he the author? Is he the source of sin? The paragraph number four, paragraph four reads, The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God are so entirely demonstrated in his providence that his determinate counsel, sovereign plan and government bringing about an intended end, extends itself even to the first fall. That's Adam's fall. And all other sinful actions, both of angels and men. These things come to pass not by mere permission or passive allowance, but even these he most wisely and powerfully limits and otherwise orders and governs in a manifold, that is varied and complex, dispensation or government, to accomplish his most holy purposes. However, this comes to pass in such a way that the sinfulness of these acts only comes from the creatures and not from God who, being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the approver of sin. 
So again, a very full paragraph uh, with a lot in it. And yet the point is fairly simple. God is in control even of sin. That's the point. God is in control even of sin. Some of you have done uh, projects in your home. Maybe, uh, maybe remodeling a certain room or something in your house. A number of years ago, when Megan and I had first moved into our first home in Fairlawn, we'd been there just a few months. Actually, technically, it was before we moved in. And we were going to redo the kitchen floors. And we did redo the kitchen floors. And we had a plan with regard to what we wanted to do with those kitchen floors. And so the plan was in place. My dad came up, and we started to rip up the old floors in order to put down the new floors. And we got about 15 minutes in, maybe, before we realized, as we started to rip things up, that there was a leak under the sink in the kitchen that had been there for a very long time. And that leak had dripped water into the flooring and into the whole subflooring system and into the insulation and into the rafters or the joists. Uh, everything that was underneath of the floor was nasty, rotten and moldy and wet. And we realized that we were going to have to do far more than we originally planned. And so what had been planned as a day of ripping up an old floor pretty quickly and putting down a new one turned into the whole day being ripping up the old floor and putting in a whole lot of things we didn't plan for. And eventually we did get the Uh, floor repaired and we did get the new floor down and the end result was pretty much what we had originally intended it to be. But we had to work around something that we hadn't planned for. God's providence in relation to sin is not like that housing project. So God did not lay a plan for creation and determine the end for which he made everything and then foresee that there was going to be certain sin and then have to figure out a plan to get around that. His original plan actually included sin. It was part of his government of all creation to direct things in such a way that there would even be sin committed. Even the first fall of Adam. We talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago when we, we studied the doctrine of God's decree. And I asked the question, what's the most sinful thing that has ever happened in human history? In all of creation, what is the most sinful thing that's ever happened? And undoubtedly, the most sinful thing that's ever happened is the murder of God's own son on the cross. And yet, if we look at the most sinful thing that has ever happened in the murder of God's son on the cross, and we look at what the Bible says about it, then we see, yes, he was put to death at the hands of wicked men, according to Acts 2 and 4. But at the same time, according to Acts 2 and 4, he was put to death according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And so even the most sinful act that has ever taken place in human history was predetermined to come to pass by God. And we know why. Because apart from that, neither you nor me nor any other human being would ever be redeemed from our sin. And so God determined that his son would be crucified. He determined that wicked men would put him to death. He was in complete and sovereign control over it, and he did so so that you and I could be redeemed from our sin. And yet, as we saw a couple weeks ago, it's necessary to mention it again, the Bible equally teaches, as the confession says here and as the Bible clearly teaches, that God is not the author or the source of sin. So God is able to both direct and govern sin, and yet at the same time, he is in no way the author or the source of sin. 
And we know that clearly from some of the passage we've already looked at in past weeks. John 1, 1 John 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Not even in his counsel. Not even in his plans. They don't originate with him. Not the sin itself. James 1, verses 13 to 14 We read, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Where does temptation begin? With your own lust, with your own corruption, with your own sinful heart, not with God. The source of our sin is not God, it is our hearts. So the scriptures teach that God's providence extends over sin directs and governs sin, and yet at the same time, the source of sin is always in the creature and never in the creator. So for the sake of encouragement then on that first point, God's relation, God's providence in relation to sin in general, as hard as it might be for us to wrap our minds, it's actually impossible for us to wrap our minds around some of that content, that God directs and governs sin and yet he's not the author. Those are hard concepts to grasp, and yet... It would be terrible if we lived in a world in which that wasn't true. If we lived in a sinful world in which that wasn't true. Imagine living in a sinful world where God was not in control of sin. Imagine living in a world where all of the, sinful, the consequences of people's sinful actions toward you were not part of God's plan for you. If you consider this, the account of Joseph in the book of Genesis... This is obviously one of the clearest pictures of the goodness of God's providence, even in very, very sinful circumstances. So Joseph obviously suffered a great deal as a result of other people's sin. His father's sin of partiality, his brother's sin in selling him into slavery, Potiphar's wife's sin in lying and sending him to prison for something he didn't do, the cupbearer's sin of forgetting him after he gave him his word that he would talk to the king about Joseph and Joseph remained another couple years in prison. Over and over again in Joseph's life, people's sin led to miserable circumstances for him. And yet, at the end of it all, as you get to the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph is able to look his brothers in the eye who wanted to murder him and then settled for for selling him into slavery instead. He looked his brothers in the eye and he said, As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in order, to bring, uh, in order to bring about this present result to preserve many lives. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good because he knew that it would preserve many lives. His brothers intended evil. Their thoughts were evil. Their actions were evil. They hated their brother, and there is nothing to excuse their sin. It was devastating, and it caused terrible consequences in the life of Joseph. They were the source of their sin, and yet God purposed their sin for good in Joseph's life and for the nation of Israel and for other nations who benefited from his position in Egypt. God had purposed for them to commit that sin because through their sin, which they were responsible for, he was accomplishing something very good. That's the assurance we have when we suffer because of sin, other people's sin against us especially, It never excuses the sin away. The Bible never minimizes the severity, the horrid nature of sin. But our comfort 
is found in knowing that even that sin, which that person committed against you, as painful as it is, even that sin is being used by God to ultimately bring about good, his good purposes. He's directing it, and he's even bringing it about because he knows the ultimate good plans that he has for his people. So, that is the first aspect of God's providence in relation to sin. God's providence in relation to sin in general. He is in control of it. His providence extends to sin in general. And then next, God's providence, letter B, God's providence in relation to sin in the believer. And so again, the question being asked here is, if God's providence extends to everything, to every detail of life, if his hand is actively involved in shaping and molding everything that transpires in his creation, then why does he allow us to sin? Why does he allow believers to sin? Why doesn't God, in his providence, if he's really working out the details of our lives, why doesn't he just prevent us from sinning altogether if he has the ability to do that? And this paragraph is answering that question for us. Paragraph 5 says, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God often leaves his own children to various temptations and to the corruptions of their own hearts for a time. He does this to chastise them or to discipline them firmly for their former sins or to reveal to them the hidden strength of corruption and the deceitfulness of their hearts in order that they may be humbled. He also does it to raise them to a closer or more concentrated and more constant dependence on himself for their support and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy ends. Therefore, whatever happens to any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and for their good. So God at times does leave us ultimately to ourselves and even allows us to stumble into sin as believers. And he does that in order that we might grow, in order that we might be conformed to the image of his Son. So God's goal in your life, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, For this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you would be holy. This is God's desire, his plan for you, is that you would be holy. And sometimes, the way that God makes you holy in the long run, is by exposing you to the corruption that still remains in your heart in the immediate present. When we see what we are still capable of on our own apart from the grace of Christ, when we, when we feel the weakness of our remaining flesh and corruption, it causes us to cling more closely to Christ. Take Peter as an example. He's a good example of this. So Prior to Jesus' crucifixion, as he's preparing his disciples for it, and he's explaining what's going to happen, and he tells them that they're all going to forsake him, Peter said to him in Matthew 26, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. So Peter, taking the lead in self-confidence, says, Jesus, I will never deny you. His proper response, if he really understood Peter, if he really understood his own heart, his proper response would have been, 
Lord, please forbid that. Give me grace. Sustain me. Uphold me. Keep me. Don't let me fall. Help me through the trial. Help me through the temptation. I do not want to deny you. I do not want to forsake you. And I will, if not for your grace. Instead, Peter says, I am not capable of denying you. I will not do it. And of course, we know that Peter did deny Jesus three times. And we know that he was broken and contrite and humbled and wept because of the realization of his sin. And surely in the aftermath of that, we can imagine that Peter was far more aware of his own weakness, far more watchful and careful moving forward to watch out for temptation and opportunities to stumble and to cling to Christ. So Peter's denial, it was sinful. There's no excusing Peter's sin. It was an act of unbelieving self-preservation when he denied Jesus. So nothing in the Bible is minimizing the sinful nature of Peter's actions. And yet God determined to leave Peter to his own sin for a purpose. There was a reason why God did it. Ultimately that he might be brought low. That he might lean more heavily, more constantly upon Christ for his grace and for his help. And we see the same thing in the life of King David. Psalm 51. If you want a good example of why sometimes God will leave us to the corruption of our own hearts and the good and healthy effect that it ultimately has on us, go to Psalm 51 and see David's contrition, his brokenness, and his fresh realization of how desperately he needs the mercy of Christ. The same is true for all of us as well. Our sin has devastating consequences. We harm ourselves because of our sin. We harm others because of our sin. We harm the reputation of Christ because of our sin. And yet, God at times allows us still, within his providence over our lives, he allows us still to feel the pain and sorrow of our corruption in order to move us more toward humility, to take away the pride that remains in our hearts, move us more toward humility and more toward casting ourselves on him for his help. He loves us far too much to allow us to keep the remaining corruption in our heart. He wants to get it out. And he does that sometimes by allowing us to feel its presence and the pain of its presence, that we might be humbled. So that's with regard to God's providence in the life of a believer. Why does he allow sin at times in the life of the believer? Ultimately, because it drives us to humility and a greater dependence on God's grace through Christ. And then let us see God's providence in relation to sin in the unbeliever. Why does God, how does God interact? How does he relate to the sin that he sees in the life of an unbeliever? How does his providence relate to that? Paragraph 6. As for those wicked and ungodly men whom God, as a righteous judge, blinds and hardens because of former sin, from them he not only withholds his grace, by which they might have been enlightened in their understanding and worked upon in their hearts, But sometimes he also withdraws the gifts which they had and exposes them to such things as their corruptions make an occasion of sin. Moreover, he gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world and the power of Satan, by which it eventually happens that they harden themselves, even under those means which God uses for the softening of others. 
So rather than being softened by trials, afflictions, temptations, or even the preaching of the word, rather than being softened by those things, the heart of the unbeliever is further hardened by those same things. God's providence works very differently in the life of a believer than it does in the life of an unbeliever. In the life of a believer, trials, afflictions, and sorrows produce and cultivate Christ-likeness, a softness of heart. In the unbeliever, trials and afflictions and sorrows and temptations create a hardness of heart or further harden an already hardened heart. And so God's providence working in two very different ways. In the life of the believer, it works to cultivate Christ-likeness. In the life of the unbeliever, he further hardens them in their sin because of their unbelief. The, the picture of that is most clearly painted in Romans chapter 1, where we read, first of all, that men exchange the glory of God for things that are created. They refuse to worship God. They refuse to give him thanks. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They don't want to know God. They hate him. We hated him naturally in our flesh. They suppress the truth. Their hearts are hardened to God. And then three times in Romans 1, we read the phrase, God gave them over. Three different times, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts because of their hardness of hearts. God gave them over to the degrading passions because of their hardness of hearts. God gave them over to a depraved mind because of the hardness of their hearts. And so God is not taking an innocent person and hardening his or her heart in order that they might not believe. God is interacting with someone who has hardened their heart, heart to the truth, and he's ultimately giving them what they want. The unbeliever doesn't want God. The unbeliever wants sin. And so God, essentially in response to their determination to refuse him, further hands them over to what they want, their sin, their hardness of heart. Just a good reminder that we should be humbled when we think about God's providence toward the unbeliever. Titus 3 says, we were just like them. Every single one of us was once disobedient, hateful, spending our life in malice and envy, enslaved to various lusts and passions. We were hardened in our hearts. And God's normal providence towards someone who is hardened in heart is to simply hand them over to their own desires. And yet God didn't do that with us if you're in Christ. By his grace, he softened your heart. His providence worked toward your redemption instead of your ultimate destruction. And so we should be humbled when we think about God's general providence toward the unbeliever. And at the same time, we should be warned. If, if you're not taking seriously faith and repentance toward Christ, especially if you know that you're not a believer, then the Bible warns you severely and it, and it warns you and tells you if you continue in the hardness of your heart, God will continue to push you away and give you over to the things you want. Now is the time for repentance. We should never delay it thinking I'll, I'll repent later down the road. The pattern of the Bible shows us if you do not repent while you have opportunity now, if you are convicted and you harden your heart to it now, then God will very likely hand you over to the hardness of your heart because of your determination to refuse him. So there's warning when we consider God's providence toward the unbeliever in relation to his sin. And then lastly, let, uh, par section 4, paragraph uh, 7 in the confession, God's providence as it relates to the church. So the final point here is basically God's providence centers around the church. It centers around Christ 
And because the church is in union with Christ, his providence centers around the church. Paragraph 7 says, As the providence of God does in general extend to all creatures, so in a most distinctive and particular way, it takes care of his church and orders all things for her good. God cares for every creature. He has a benevolence towards all that he has made. Psalm 145, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. God has a benevolence toward every single one of his creature, creatures and in his providence he cares for every single one of them. And yet, in a distinct way, in a special way, God cares for and his providence works for the good of his church, his bride. In Ephesians 1, verse 22, we read, first, first, prior to getting to verse 22, Paul is explaining the exalted presence of Christ at the right hand of God the Father. Christ is seated in the heavens above every imaginable authority. He has all power and all dominion, and he does whatever he pleases in the heavens. That's where Christ is right now. And then, with regard to Christ in that place of highest authority, ruling and governing over all things, the Apostle Paul writes, God put all things in subjection under his feet, under Christ's feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church. The one who governs all things was given to the church. In other words, the one who governs all things, he governs all of those things for the sake of his bride. He is ruling and directing history, every detail of it, every king and every minute detail of your life, he is directing every single detail of history for the good of his bride because he loves her. In, I think it's Zechariah chapter 2, uh, I could be mistaken, I think it's Zechariah chapter 2, God says of his people that they are the apple of his eye. And he says he is going to destroy the nation that harmed her, his people, because she is the apple of his eye. And in a similar way, the church is the, is the apple of God's eye. And God is working all things together. No enemy against the church will ever prevail. We know that. And God is working all things together for the good of his church because she is his precious, prized possession. Uh, Ephesians 1, again, it tells us that the church is the riches of his inheritance. The church is God's inheritance. He loves his bride, and he is working everything together for the good of his bride. Yes, he cares for all creatures, but not like he cares for his church. He cares for his bride in a special, redemptive, personal, fatherly way. And we can rest in the certainty of that, even as we look out at what doesn't seem to be all things working together for the good of the church. Even as we look out at a providence that doesn't seem pleasant or good or favorable toward us as individuals, we can rest in the certainty that the one who is directing everything you see, everything you experience, everything that you face in life, the one who is directing all of those things is like a conductor, perfectly conducting the orchestra toward that climactic finish that serves for the good of his bride and the glory of Christ Jesus. There is no detail in all of creation that will not work for the good of the bride of Christ. In just a moment, we're going to sing God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It's a very good reflection of some of the truth that we've 
seen uh, this evening as we've considered God's providence, especially verses 2 and 3. It says, ye fearful, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes were ripe and fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. One day we will see that God certainly has worked out all things for the good of his people. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for that assurance, not because we are worthy of your love, not because we have merited in any way that you should cause things to work out for our good, but because of the risen Christ who has died for us and now lives as our Savior, we're able to say confidently that all things will be well for the bride of Christ. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our hearts in that truth. We pray that we would be able to face our trials and afflictions and whatever circumstances we might go through in life with a greater confidence because we know the God who holds all things in your hands and whose providence is over every detail of our lives. Um, So we pray, cultivate in us, help us to, to cultivate by your grace, by your spirit, and through your word, a great sense of your trustworthiness and a great sense of the peace that comes from knowing you as the God of providence. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.